I'm Wayne Turner, and welcome to the daily podcast of Bible Track. I have developed Bible Track to be both a commentary and a daily Bible reading schedule. These podcasts cover the text and commentary, which may be found at www.bibletrack.org. So, for those who have a busy schedule but do have time to listen to the Bible being read, this podcast is for you. At the end of one year, you will have gone completely through the Bible. As we continue our chronological reading of the Gospels, today we'll be looking at Luke chapter 17, beginning with verse 11, down through chapter 18, verse 14. But first we'll look at John chapter 11, verses 1 through 54. Now, in this passage, these passages today, we'll be looking at the... Uh, at this point in Jesus' ministry where he's been ministering in Perea. He began that back in John chapter 10, verse 40. Uh, Jesus is returning to Bethany about a mile and a half from Jerusalem. There he goes to raise Lazarus. After Lazarus, Jesus and his disciples go north away from Jerusalem. In Luke chapter 17, verse 11, we see that Jesus and his disciples had gone as far north as Samaria and Galilee, but now they're returning to Jerusalem. And all of these events take place at least a week or so before Jesus' crucifixion. I base this conjecture upon the fact that the next event recorded by John is in Bethany six days before Jesus' crucifixion in John chapter 12. Let's begin today with John chapter 11, verse 1. We see that Lazarus in this passage dies. Now a certain man was sick named Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was that Mary which anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore his sister sent unto him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, When he had heard, therefore, that he was sick, he abode two days still in the place where he was. Then after that, saith he to his disciples, Let us go into Judea again. His disciples say unto him, Master, the Jews of late sought to stone thee, and goest thou thither again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If any man walk in the day, he stumbleth not, because he seeth the light of this world. But if a man walk in the night, he stumbleth, because there is no light in him. These things said he, and after that he saith unto them, Our friend Lazarus sleepeth, but I go that I may awaken him out of sleep. Then said his disciples, Lord, if he sleep, he shall do well. Howbeit Jesus spake of his death, but they thought that he had spoken of taking of rest and sleep. Then said Jesus unto them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, to the intent that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go unto him. Then said Thomas, which is called Didymus, unto his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Then when Jesus came, he found that he had lain in the grave four days already. Well, we see here that when they send word to Jesus, Lazarus is just sick at this point. In the preceding chapter, Jesus had gone over the Jordan into Perea. That was took place in John chapter 10, verse 40. 
Now, if that's where Jesus is at the time of this emergency, as it appears, that's about 30 or so miles from Bethany where Lazarus is. It's a little far to travel by foot in one day. That being the case, by the time the messenger arrives to the place where Jesus is staying, a day or so has already passed. However, Jesus waits two more days before leaving for Judea. Before he goes, he tells his disciples that Lazarus is now dead. Apparently, Jesus plans to travel by day rather than by night, even though the disciples point out that the Jewish leaders want him dead. There appears to be a double meaning to Jesus' reply in verses 9 and 10, both practical and spiritual, and that's regarding walking in the daytime rather than at night. Upon arrival, Lazarus is good and dead. I mean, four days worth of good and dead. Jesus had healed sick people many times. Everyone expected him to be able to do that. As a matter of fact, Jesus had raised the 12-year-old girl from the dead back in Mark chapter 5, verses 38 to 43. It's still interesting that everyone on this occasion seems to think that Lazarus' best odds for a healthy lifestyle would have certainly been if he'd been healed from sickness rather than raised from the dead. I guess they all figured that dying just sort of takes something out of you. As I indicated, the disciples were not crazy about the idea of going back to Judea to see a dead man in the first place. Well, Jesus was almost stoned there earlier. I think I see sarcasm from Thomas in verse 16, don't you? Yeah, let's just go back where they can kill us too. The vicinity around Jerusalem was considered a danger zone for Jesus and the disciples. Now let's continue reading with verse 18. Now Bethany was nigh to Jerusalem, about fifteen furlongs off. And many of the Jews came to Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary sat still in the house. Then said Martha unto Jesus, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. But I know that even now, whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it thee. Jesus saith unto her, Thy brother shall rise again. Martha saith unto him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? She saith unto him, Yea, Lord, I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of God, which should come into the world. And when she had so said, she went her way, and called Mary her sister secretly, saying, The Master is come, and calleth for thee. As soon as she heard that, she arose quickly, and came unto him. Now Jesus was not yet come into the town, but was in that place where Martha met him. The Jews then which were with her in the house, and comforted her, when they saw Mary, that she rose up hastily and went out, followed her, saying, She goeth into the grave to weep there. Then when Mary was come where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying unto him, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews also weeping which came with her, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled, and said, Where have ye laid him? They said unto him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Then said the Jews, Behold how he loved him. And some of them said, Could not this man which opened the eyes of the blind have caused that even this man should not have died? 
Jesus, therefore, again groaning in himself, cometh to the grave. It was a cave, and a stone lay upon it. Jesus said, Take ye away the stone. Martha, the sister of him that was dead, saith unto him, Lord, by this time he stinketh, for he hath been dead four days. Jesus saith unto her, Said I not unto thee, that if thou wouldst believe, thou shouldest see the glory of God? Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead was laid. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me. And I knew that thou hearest me always, but because of the people which stand by, I said it, that they may believe that thou hast sent me. And when he had thus spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was bound about with a napkin. Jesus saith to them, Loose him, and let him go. Then many of the Jews which came to Mary, and had seen the things which Jesus did, believed on him. But some of them went their ways to the Pharisees, and told them what things Jesus had done. We see here in verses 18 and 19 that this just couldn't be a covert operation. Being only about one and a half miles from Jerusalem, Martha and Mary were receiving Jewish visitors from Jerusalem upon the death of Lazarus. Two sisters agree, both in verses 22 and 32, and here's what they agree on. If Christ had been there, Lazarus would not have died. It's obvious they'd gotten accustomed to the idea that Jesus could heal. But there did seem to be some doubt as to whether he could do something after a person had already died. I've always found verse 39 kind of amusing. When Christ commands that the stone be rolled away, Martha the pragmatist points out that a body that has decayed for four days smells, you know, kind of funny when she says, Lord, by this time he stinketh, for he hath been dead four days. Of course, that's the incredible part of this miracle. And that's why Jesus delayed coming after he heard that Lazarus was sick. I mean, if you want to make a point that you have power over death, make certain everybody understands how dead he really is. He's four days worth of dead. It was also a nice way to make the point to have Lazarus come forth still bound in the burial clothing. The way they bound dead bodies back then, Lazarus must have been hopping because his hands and feet were bound, unless Christ floated him out. He also had this wrapping on his face. I mean, the burial cloth right there across his face. That must have left uh, Lazarus kind of, well, speechless, I'm guessing. I wonder if Martha was right. Did he stink? The bottom line that day is this. Jesus has power over death. Oh, and those Jewish visitors who'd come to visit Mary and Martha, they head back to Jerusalem to tell the Pharisees what Jesus had done. In verses 47 to 54, we have Caiaphas, the unsuspecting prophet. Verse 47. Then gathered the chief priest and the Pharisees a council and said, What do we? For this man doeth many miracles. If we let him thus alone, all men will believe on him. And the Romans shall come and take away both our place and nation. And one of them, named Caiaphas, being the high priest that same year, said unto them, Ye know nothing at all, nor consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and that the whole nation perish not. And this spake he not of himself, but being high priest that year, 
he prophesied that Jesus should die for that nation, and not for that nation only, but that also he should gather together in one the children of God that were scattered abroad. Then from that day forth they took counsel together for to put him to death. Jesus therefore walked no more openly among the Jews, but went thence unto a country near to the wilderness, into a city called Ephraim, and there continued with his disciples. And the Jews' Passover was nigh at hand. And many went out of the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Well, word of the Lazarus resurrection gets back to the Jewish bigwigs. Jesus was giving these Jewish leaders fits. I mean, what are we going to do? The Jewish leaders wondered. Their conversation divulges their own selfish interest in this passage. It's obvious that they weren't interested in any messianic implications at all. They just wanted to retain their power over the Jewish people. You recall that these were corrupt leaders. Jesus had told them that they were their father, the devil. They were whited sepulchers. They were a generation of vipers. So they didn't have the people's interest in mind at all. Then Caiaphas, the high priest, who didn't believe in the supernatural because the Sadducees didn't believe in the supernatural, he reveals the whole problem in their minds when he says, essentially, better him, Jesus, than us. Actually, his exact words are recorded in verse 50. He says, nor consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation perish not. Caiaphas, you just said a mouthful, buddy. John points out in verses 51 and 52 that Caiaphas unknowingly prophesied that the death of Jesus Christ would serve as the propitiation for the sins of the world. From that day forward, the Jewish leaders made it a point to find and arrest Jesus. At this point, we're told that Jesus and his disciples left the Jerusalem area and that they headed into a country near to the wilderness into a city called Ephraim. We're not certain where that city was located, but it was undoubtedly north of Jerusalem some distance, and it was away from the long arm of the religion police, the Sanhedrin. Now, going over to Luke chapter 17, beginning with verse 11, we find the story of the ungrateful lepers, verse 11. And it came to pass, as he went to Jerusalem, that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered into a certain village, there met him ten men that were lepers, which stood afar off. And they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said unto them, Go show yourselves unto the priest. And it came to pass, as they went, that they were cleansed. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, and with a loud voice glorified God, and fell down on his face at his feet, giving him thanks, and he was a Samaritan. And Jesus answering said, Were there not ten cleansed, but where are the nine? There are not found that return to give glory to God, save this stranger. And he said unto him, Arise, go thy way, thy faith hath made thee whole. Now we're not told the exact location of this healing, just that it was in a certain village somewhere on his journey through Samaria and Galilee. Jesus, in this passage, heals ten lepers, but only one of them, a Samaritan, returns to give him thanks. The nine others, presumably Jews, were obviously just plain old greedy. 
They thought of themselves and their plight only, lacking consideration for others. According to Leviticus chapter 14, there was an established procedure of going to the priest after being cleansed of leprosy. In verse 18, the Samaritan is referred to by Jesus as a stranger. That's the term reflecting the Greek word alagones, that's meaning not a Jew. Presumably, the Samaritan was not headed to the same destination to show his leprosy-free skin to the priest since he was a Samaritan and not welcome in Jewish circles. Once he realized he was healed, he returned to Jesus to give thanks. The other nine just continued to make their way to the priest. Now, in chapter 17, verses 20 to 37, we see Jesus talking about an event, which I'm going to tell you up front here, is not the rapture. Verse 20. And when he was demanded of the Pharisees when the kingdom of God should come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God cometh not with observation. Neither shall they say, Lo here or lo there. For behold, the kingdom of God is within you. And he said unto the disciples, The days will come when ye shall desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and ye shall not see it. And they shall say unto you, See here or see there. Go not after them, nor follow them. For as the lightning that lighteneth out of the one part under heaven shineth unto the other part under heaven, so shall also the Son of Man be in his day. But first must he suffer many things and be rejected of this generation. And as it was in the day of Noah, so shall it also be in the days of the Son of Man. They did eat, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage, until the day that Noah entered into the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise also as it was in the days of Lot, they did eat, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they builded. But the same day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even thus shall it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. In that day he which shall be upon the housetop, and his stuff in the house, let him not come down to take it away. And he that is in the field, let him likewise not return back. Remember Lot's wife. Whosoever shall seek to save his life shall lose it, and whosoever shall lose his life shall preserve it. I tell you, in that night there shall be two men in one bed. The one shall be taken, and the other shall be left. The two women shall be grinding together. The one shall be taken, and the other left. Two men shall be in the field. The one shall be taken, and the other left. And they answered and said unto him, Where, Lord? And he said unto them, Wheresoever the body is, thither will the eagles be gathered together. Now, I know this passage sounds to Christians like a description of the events accompanying the rapture of believers, but I can assure you it is definitely not. To be scripturally accurate, while 1 Thessalonians 4, 15-18 and 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51-53 to are clearly references to a yet future event, when believers are called away and taken to heaven, we know it is the rapture. This passage is not a description of that same event. It is not a description of the rapture. So you might ask, what is the event described by Jesus in this passage? Well, without question, Jesus is describing the second coming when Jesus actually comes back to earth and sets up the long-anticipated rule of the Messiah over the entire earth. 
As a matter of fact, that's the exact question in verse 20, when the Pharisees query him on when the kingdom of God should come. That's a question about the millennium, the kingdom rule of the Messiah. Now, I've provided a prophecy timeline, a simple one, on this page of the written notes of BibleTrack.org. You might want to take a look at that. Now, first of all, let me point out that no signs must be evident prior to the rapture of the church of believers. This event takes place seven years prior to the second coming of Jesus Christ. The second coming of Jesus Christ is the event that Jesus is speaking of in this passage. When Jesus raptures the church, we who are believers, we go to heaven with him immediately. When he returns after the tribulation period of seven years, he sets up the kingdom prophesied by the Old Testament prophets. This event is properly called the second coming, not the rapture of believers. Now, let's deal with the passage itself. To get our perspective, let's pay close attention to verse 20. It says, And when he was demanded of the Pharisees when the kingdom of God should come, he answered them said, The kingdom of God cometh not with observation. These Pharisees aren't asking about the rapture. That was a concept completely foreign to them. As a matter of fact, no such doctrine, the rapture of believers, had been revealed up to this point. They, they want to know specifically when the Old Testament prophecy of the Davidic rule on earth is going to be established. I've written an article entitled The Davidic Covenant. It's under the topic section of BibleTrack.org. You might want to take a look at that. They understand, here's what the Jews of that day understood. They understand that Jesus is proclaiming himself to be that Messiah. They want to know if he intends to establish that kingdom right now, or if not right now, when. That's when Jesus points out that it will not come with the evidences that they anticipate. In verses 21 to 24, he further explains that it will not come indiscreetly, but it will come as lightning. That's a good description of the second coming events that we find in Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 21. That is the time that's the end of the tribulation, and that is when Jesus comes back. In Luke chapter 17, verse 21, Jesus is saying that this kingdom is within their grasp. But we know now what Jesus knew then, and it was also prophesied by Isaiah, Daniel, and others, that they would reject Jesus as the Messiah, thus passing on the immediate realization of the Davidic kingdom on earth. In verse 25, Jesus reveals that he, the Messiah, must suffer many things, he says, before any of this takes place. That was a prophecy of his crucifixion, which was prophesied also in Isaiah chapter 53. Now, notice two illustrations of the second coming given by Jesus here. The first is that of Noah. In that scenario, who left the earth and who stayed behind? Well, in that scenario, the wicked were swept away by the flood, leaving the righteous family of Noah. And secondly, with regard to Lot and his family, who left the earth and who stayed behind? Well, you know, the wicked were burned up, and Lot's family survived on the earth. Neither of these illustrations are compatible with the rapture when just the opposite of what takes place at the rapture happens. The righteous at the rapture are taken up to heaven, and the wicked stay behind. However, at the Battle of Armageddon that I referenced in Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 21, at the Battle of Armageddon at the end of the tribulation, the wicked indeed are caught away or destroyed, and the righteous are left behind 
to populate the millennium. Now, keeping that in mind, let's look at the twos. The two men in the bed, the two women grinding, the two men in the field. One is taken and one is left. So I know that sounds rapture but who's taken? Well, in this passage, it's the end of the tribulation, just prior to the millennium. And there's no question. The wicked, they are swept away to judgment. And the righteous, well, they stay to populate the millennium. See, this is not the rapture, but the second coming of Jesus Christ at the end of the tribulation, just prior to the millennial kingdom. And that's about which the Pharisees were indeed asking, going back to verse 20. There's a kind of a humorous addendum to this. A lady one time pointed out to me that while the two men were sleeping in verse 34, the two women were working in verse 35. That just goes to show you that different folks pick up on different aspects of a passage. Now, later on in Jerusalem, Jesus would once again deal with the issue of the second coming, uh, literally the establishment of the Davidic kingdom, using much the same terminology and analogies. While similar, that's definitely a separate later occasion when Jesus was teaching. And we'll see that when we get over to Matthew chapter 24, verses 1 through 31. And that passage is paralleled by Mark chapter 13, verses 1 to 37, and Luke chapter 21, verses 5 to 28. Now notice Luke chapter 17, verse 37. Here's what it says. And they answered and said unto him, Where, Lord? And he said unto them, wheresoever the body is, thither will the eagles be gathered together. Now, at the Battle of Armageddon, there will be unprecedented death of the wicked. The Greek word translated eagles there is atos, which merely means something that flies. Jesus uses the same phrase later on in Jerusalem when he teaches on the second coming and the Battle of Armageddon in those passages that I referenced a few moments ago. Notice the comparison between the two passages. In Matthew twenty four twenty eight, it says, For wheresoever the carcass is, there will the eagles be gathered together. And here in this passage, in Luke seventeen thirty seven, he says, Where, Lord? And he said unto them, Wheresoever the body is, thither will the eagles be gathered together. It's quite clear that Jesus intends for the disciples to understand the something that flies here following the battle of Armageddon to be vultures over dead bodies. And that brings us to Luke chapter 18, where we see the parable of the unjust judge, verse 1. And he spake a parable unto them to this end, that men ought always to pray and not to faint, saying, There was in a city a judge which feared not God, neither regarded man. And there was a widow in that city, and she came unto him, saying, Avenge me of mine adversary. And he would not for a while, but afterward he said within himself, Though I fear not God, nor regard man, yet because this widow troubleth me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. And the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge saith. And shall not God avenge his own elect, which cried day and night unto him, though he bear long with them, I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Now, we just read verse 8 in the second part of that verse. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? That makes it clear that this parable ties in with the comments made by Jesus regarding the Messianic kingdom, 
when he asked that question. Jesus gives this short parable to make a point. God will answer the persistent prayers of his people when he returns to establish his kingdom on earth in the person of Jesus Christ. Here's the uh, parallel of persistence and petitioning. If that works on an unjust judge, how much more effective will that same persistence be with a just God? Now we come to verse 9 of chapter 18, and we find another blast against the Pharisees here. Verse 9, And he spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week, I give tithes of all that I possess. And the publican standing afar off would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for every one that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. So we see here another parable, and Jesus frames this parable with these words in verse 9. And he spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. So going back to the two men sleeping, the two men working in verses 34 and 35 of chapter 17, who's righteous in this passage? Is it the Pharisee who boasts of all the righteous-looking things he's doing, in other words, tithing, fasting, and so forth? Or is it the common man who stands before God in prayer and simply says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner? You see, the salvation proposition has always been about trusting. It's been about believing faith. And after the believing faith, God provides forgiveness. It's never been about doing righteous-looking things. The word publican here in this chapter comes from the Greek word telonais. To the Jews, these were among the worst kind of sinners. They were Jewish tax collectors. More appropriately, they were tax farmers. These publicans contracted with the Roman government, having secured the contract with the highest bid. They contracted with the Roman government for the right to collect taxes from the people in their assigned region. They paid a lump sum to the Roman government up front in advance for this contract. And then they added a markup to the individual taxes they imposed upon the people to provide themselves with a nice profit. It was up to them how much markup they added. And they had the full force of Roman law behind them to facilitate their collections. Well, you can see why, though they were wealthy and Jewish, they were despised by, well, almost everyone. Incidentally, Matthew, who was a disciple of Jesus and the author of the gospel account that bears his name, Matthew was one of these publicans before he followed Jesus. His call to follow Jesus and become one of his disciples is found in Matthew chapter 9 and verse 9. This concludes our podcast for today. I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.bibletrack.org. Thank you for listening in today. The background music for these podcasts is an original composition written by the music director of Faith Bible Church, Paul Walter.